Good morning, everyone. So those of you who were here last week might remember that we talked um, a bit about home groups, talked a little bit about what it means to join together in home groups. Um, and we talked about, about how when, in terms of spiritual growth, if we're thinking we're only going to grow in this hour and a half that we're here on Sunday, then we're not going to be growing very much. Uh, we talked a little bit about how the early church incorporated all sorts of different things into their lives, all sorts of different practices and rhythms that they filled their time with um, in order to help them grow as Christians. And we highlighted that their public meeting um, in their place of worship, like what we do here, it was only one small snippet of all that they filled their lives with. And then I also attempted to debunk some of the maybe excuses that come to your mind when you think about joining a home group. And I've been encouraged this week um, by some stories from those in our congregation who have responded positively to invites to home groups or have thought creatively about a way that they might be able to make a home group or a cell group, a life group, a small group, whatever you want to call it, um, how they might make that work for them. And so that was very encouraging. And so this morning I want to build a little bit more on this idea of doing life together or living together. Um, those of you who are onto it might have noticed that last week in the newsletter I had said this sermon would be about covenanting. And then this week I changed it to living together. And that was only because I wasn't sure which was the best summarizing word. So this morning we're going to talk a bit about living together and also a bit about covenanting as a way that we can live more effectively together as well. So covenanting might be a bit of a weird word and maybe one that you haven't heard in, more, in recent times. Um, it's definitely a word that was very foreign to me until I went to Kerry Baptist College and like covenanting was kind of all the rage. It was like a big thing to do. Um, and lots of people talked about living in a covenant community. And I had no idea what that meant either. But it turns out that covenant communities are quite a Baptist thing. And so when I took the Baptist church's paper, as was required for me to do, um, I got to learn quite a bit about it. And so I'm no history buff, like not even close. I'm terrible at knowing anything about history. But let me take you on a short history lesson. It's going to be promising. So way, way back in the day, in the 1600s, um, there was a group of believers who were facing intense persecution um, from the greater church, which, I mean, that's nothing really out of the ordinary, but it was all around the way that they wanted to worship God. And so these believers were led by a guy called John Smythe, um, and they had together read through scripture, and they had come to the conclusion that there were some things about the way that the Church of England was doing their church that they didn't quite agree with. They thought, hmm, the way we want to worship God is not exactly like they're kind of saying we have to. And so one of the bigger factors was the way that they practiced baptism. So the Church of England would baptize babies into the church when they were born. But this group of believers, led by John Smythe, what they had interpreted or taken from Scripture as they'd read it was that um, baptism to them was something that a believer would do, someone who could profess their own faith and make their decision to be baptized. And so... 
This group of believers, they just couldn't sit with this. They couldn't sit with this idea of baptizing children as they were born. And so they separated themselves from the Church of England. And they called themselves separatists, which is very original. But much, much further down the track, they, became to, they came to be known as Baptists. And while the name Baptist points directly towards baptism being kind of the key issue that has separated this group from the rest of them. Um, It wasn't the only thing. Baptism was part of it, but not the only thing. A big part of what set this group apart was it was kind of came about for them before they even solidified any of their doctrine or made up their mind about any of their core beliefs. And it was all about the way that they banded together. So when John Smythe and his friends started branching out from the Church of England, people, they weren't happy. They'd just gone through this massive process of the Protestants separating from the Catholics and this massive change. And now there was another group of people who wanted to change even further, complicate things just a little bit more, and they just weren't having it. And so this group led by John Smythe, they were severely persecuted. The Church of England people, they really bet down on them and they threatened them with death. They wanted to run them out of town. And so John and his friends, they didn't just back down and slink their way back in there. Instead, they banded together even tighter. One of the original members of the group is recorded saying that members joined themselves by a covenant of the Lord into a church to walk in all his ways made known or to be made known to them. Whatsoever it should cost them, the Lord assisting them. So when it got too much for them in England, when the kind of pressure coming onto them was just too much, this group stayed together, and together they moved over to Amsterdam, where they were able to worship in the way that they wanted. And they remained in Amsterdam altogether for about three years. And after that time, some of those who were still deeply committed to one another and deeply committed to what they understood to be the truth of Scripture, they bravely returned to England and they began what is known as the First Baptist Church. So what made them different, what made them what we call Baptists, was not simply their thoughts about baptism, but it primarily was the way that the group committed to walking together in a covenant relationship with each other and with God. And when someone joined their congregation and they were baptised, their baptism was a public declaration of their commitment not only to God, but to this group of believers, and a commitment to say that they would walk with this congregation. That is what first made Baptists Baptist. And I wonder if over time we've lost the richness of this covenant commitment to one another. I remember when I was younger, I likened um, baptism to marriage. And I don't really know why, but I guess it was a way for me to understand kind of the significance of the decision that you'd make when you got baptized. You know, I thought, you know, when you get baptized, it's kind of like you're publicly marrying yourself to God. You're saying, yep, this relationship is real, and this is the way that I want to walk, and God is the one that I want to walk with. And, I mean, marriage is one of our last, like, kind of last, 
standing, kind of real covenant relationships. I mean, you make vows to another person, to one another. You exchange rings, like a sign of the covenant. You even have to sign for it. It's one of our last kind of standing formal, real covenant relationships. And it requires both parties to keep to their vows as best as they can and to work hard and take responsibility for maintaining the covenant they made on that day. But what I like especially about the story of these first Baptists is that for them, baptism was always covenantal. They really got that. It wasn't only about the public declaration um, of faith in God. It was about the public declaration of commitment to the church community they were being baptized into. So for them, baptism was described as being vertical and horizontal. It was vertical in the sense that in baptism, you're publicly stepping out and acknowledging your faith in God and stepping into that covenant that he has made with his people through Jesus. And it was horizontal in the sense that when you were baptized into a family of believers who were committed to walking together with one another, and when you were baptized into that, they were then committing to walking with you and you committing to walking with them. And I mean, as I heard about this and learnt about this at Kiri, I thought, jeepers, you know, my younger self was kind of right. If only I'd studied the early Baptists, I would have known, yes, baptism being like marriage is quite accurate. And while we don't really use the language of covenanting that much anymore, um, it was used a lot during biblical times. And like with the vertical and horizontal components of baptism, there was also um, vertical and horizontal covenants made throughout Scripture. So the vertical covenants that were made were the ones that God made with his people. And the thing about most of the covenants that God made is that they went one way only. They call them unilateral. God set the covenants. God initiated, he determined the elements, he confirmed his covenants with humanity. And humanity, they were simply recipients, not contributors. God didn't expect humanity to offer something to the bond. They were called to accept it just as it was offered, to keep it as God commanded, and just to receive whatever God promised would be given. For example... God's new covenant, which currently stands with humanity. God sent his son Jesus to earth to live amongst us and to show us the way to the Father and to make that way. Jesus made the way by paying the ultimate sacrifice for our sins when he died on the cross. He put his blood poured out to cover our transgressions so that our Father would welcome us into heaven to live eternally with him. In this new covenant, we haven't done anything to earn it, and we haven't really done anything to deserve it either. But God has sent this covenant, set this covenant with humanity out of his great grace and mercy and out of his deep love for his people. All we can do is choose to accept it and to live under it. The horizontal covenants, however, are the ones that are made between two parties of people. In these covenants, they require commitment and work from both parties in order to, like in a marriage, uphold the covenant that they've agreed to. 
These covenants can be called bilateral because they go both ways. These covenants are also commonly cemented with an oath or with an action that confirms what this covenant said and to confirm the commitment of the two parties. There's many examples in scripture, but one I found in Genesis 26, which was a covenant made between Isaac and Abimelech. Isaac and Abimelech had been having some turf wars, and Abimelech was just a bit over it. He was just a little bit sick of it. And so he came to Isaac and said, look, Isaac, this is not the way that we want to live. Me and my people, we want to be able to live in peace with you and your people. And so Isaac said, okay, let's make a covenant then and agree to living in this way. And so Isaac prepared a covenant feast for them to share in, and in the morning they both took an oath to live in peace together. So this covenant came together well for Isaac and Abimelech, but it did require both of them to take responsibility of the way that they were going to live together, for the way that they were interacting with each other in order to continue living in peace together. And once again, I wonder if over time we've lost the richness of this covenant commitment to one another. I mentioned earlier that at Kiri, living in a covenant community was like all the rage. And I had a group of friends who in their second year formed one of these communities. And so I learned that a covenant community is a group of people who decide to live intentionally together under a covenant relationship. So these friends of mine who did this, they got together and they prayerfully considered where they might live, they found a house, and then they prayerfully together came up with a covenant that they would live under. And that sounds a little bit kind of daunting or intimidating, living under a covenant. But they didn't do this because they just liked obeying strict rules or anything. But their covenant was formed around things like praying together, sharing meals together, um, attending and worshipping at their local church, inviting neighbours over each week for dinner and things like that. Things that you can't really argue with. And because they made these things official, and because they considered them thoughtfully and prayerfully together and noted them down, they were able to hold each other accountable to living in this intentional way. They committed to walking with one another, and that was intentional. When one was falling behind or if someone couldn't be there, the others were there to check in with them, to ask them what was going on, and to help them stay committed to what they had said they would do. And they saw the opportunity that this intentional relationship gave them in order to nurture and encourage spiritual growth in one another. And this way of living, it certainly is specific, and it's not, excuse me, it's not for everyone. And in the case of my friends, each of them felt called by God to live in this way. But I think it is worth highlighting these covenant communities simply as a way for us, for us to challenge ourselves and assess how we're living currently together and consider the opportunity of how this might help us to reclaim the richness of covenanting together as a church family in order to encourage and nurture spiritual growth. A covenant relationship, it asks the question, how do we want to live together? Which is a really good place to start. 
When God looked at humanity, he might have asked himself, how do I want to live with my people? And his design in the Garden of Eden gives us a pretty clear answer. He wanted to dwell with us, to live in perfect relationship with us. And so when things in Eden took a nasty turn and humanity chose to go their own way, God had to consider how now will we achieve that relationship. And that is why he sent his son Jesus to pay the ultimate sacrifice, to atone for our sins and our bad decisions. And so that we could live with God in the relationship that he wanted. And when Abimelech looked at Isaac, he might have asked himself, how do I want to live with Isaac and his people? And he obviously came to the conclusion that in a constant turf war was not the desired result. And so Abimelech and his people, they wanted to live in peace with Isaac and his people. And so Abimelech came to Isaac. They made a covenant. They took an oath together to confirm that they would strive to live in peace as one. And we can also use this question to consider our own situations. Take your family relationship, for instance. How do you want to live together as a family? Maybe there are some things that you would like to make a little more intentional, like praying together or making sure you're all there to share meals together. Take some time maybe as a family, to discuss these things, to put them on the table, and maybe even make a note of them and agree to them together so that you can hold one another accountable. Or maybe even for yourself individually or with a friend, you might decide, how do I want to live with these people around me? Are there areas in my life I want to make more intentional? So maybe you want to introduce some exercise into your routine, or maybe you want to take a proper Sabbath day once a week. Invite a friend into this decision with you and ask them to hold you accountable, and you can hold them accountable. Or if you're part of a home group, maybe you're just joining one, maybe you're just creating one, this could be a really good place to start. Ask the question together, how do we want to live together as a home group? Maybe you want to share a meal or communion every time you come together. Or maybe you want to make every, say, third meeting a social one where you just get to hang out. It could be anything. I'm really, I'm really just coming up with random ideas. But maybe there is something that you have always wanted to try, something that would be really important to you, but you've just never had the chance to share it or to discuss it. So as a home group, maybe you could make the time to get everything out on the table for everyone to put forward their ideas of how they could live together and then prayerfully consider them, commit to some of them, keep each other accountable to them. And then we can take this question even wider to how we live together as a church family. Because our home groups are often formed around those who are at a similar age or stage of life. And so maybe there's a bunch of you in your home group that think, man, I could really do with this, whatever it is. But those in your home group are thinking the same thing, so they can't really offer that. And so take a look around the congregation today and ask yourself, how do I want to live with this church family? What do I need and what can I give? Because I don't know everyone's particular capabilities or needs, but you guys do. 
You know your situations. You know the things that you might be lacking in and the things that you might have an abundance of. And so I'm sure you could each name something that you need and something that you could offer. Because some things I do know is that there are people in this congregation who live far from family. They don't have the luxury of maybe palming the kids off to their grandparents for a night out. But I also know that there are people in this congregation, both young and old, who enjoy the company of children and have time on their hands to offer. I know that there are people in our congregation who might need help transporting to places. You know, getting the shopping, getting to church might not be the easiest thing. But I also know that there are others here with driver's licenses and cars who would be willing to lend a hand we needed. And I know that there are people in our congregation who might want to mentor a relationship with someone maybe older and wiser, who they can talk with, who can, they can be encouraged by and receive advice from. But they might just not know where to start in terms of asking. But I know that there are also others in our congregation who are overflowing with wisdom, who would love the opportunity to share that with someone who needs it. And I know that there are people in our congregation who might just have projects happening at home, things that they just need to get done, but it's hard to find the time and it's hard to find the manpower. And I also know there are plenty of capable and willing hands in our congregation who would be willing to lend a hand to a friend. There are things that others need in this place and there are things that others can offer in this place. A lot of them are only small as well, but sometimes we just don't know where to start in asking for help, or we don't know where to start in offering to give help. And if we're going to consider how we want to live together as a church family, we need to be open and willing to serve one another in love, to be there for one another, whatever we need. The beauty of being a part of a church family is that it's full of people who are at different ages and stages of life. So we often have very different things that we can offer. So let's make the most of the people that we are surrounded with, the skills and the capabilities that we're surrounded with, and learn to love and serve one another as we live together under Christ. So we're going to finish with a couple of songs today. And while those songs are happening, you might have noticed that there's brightly colored paper at the end of each aisle, along with some pens. But I would like you to continue thinking about how you might want to live together as a church community. Are there things that you need? Are there things that you can offer? So take a piece of paper. If you need more, there'll be extras on some of the rows. Take a piece of paper, write your name on it, if you're feeling brave, and write down on one side what's something that you can offer and what is something that you need. And then you can take your time with this. You don't need to rush. But while we're singing the last couple of songs, write those things down and then just go and stick it on the wall kind of closest to where you are. Then as we go around, as, as the service ends, we can take a look around and we can notice, oh, that person needs help with that. I can give them a hand, and you can find that person and offer them a hand. Or you might think, oh, that person's offering to help with that. I could really do with that. I'm really in need of that. So you can find them and ask them for help. 
but we want to reclaim the richness of us living together. We want to reclaim the richness of being a church community who loves and serves one another and cares for one another. And we've got our kids in here with us this morning, and I want you guys to take part too, because you are also a part of this church family. You are a part of this family at Ham South. And so we want to know, is there anything that we could do for you that would make you feel more of a part of this family? But there might also be things that you're really talented at, things that you've got to give that might be really helpful to someone else that you could offer them to help out. Write those things down too, because we want to join together across ages and stages of life and serve and love one another. This is a a chance for us to say, yes, I am following Jesus, and yes, I am committed to doing that with those around us. So grab a piece of paper and a pen. If you need more, there's some up the front. But write these things down, and then take the opportunity to consider what someone else has written, and ask yourself whether you can help them or whether they might be able to help you.